Hey, this episode of the Adventist Millennial Podcast is sponsored by The Haystack. The Haystack is a voice for young adults in the Seventh-day Adventist Church that produces articles, music reviews, videos, and more. What's the and more? Well, you'll have to go to their website to find out. Thehaystack.org. The Haystack. Life. Culture. Theology. Ah, hello, you've come back. I've come back. I'm alright. If you can tell me what that's from... Two points for you. (laughs) Speaking of getting points, here's another way that you can get points. Go back through all the episodes of my podcast and flag the episodes that you think I have not fully written out and read um, and rather bulleted and spoken extemporaneously. I I would be interested to know because my oral communication skills are much, much weaker than my written communication skills, and I suspect you can tell the difference when I've hastily jotted down bullets of what I want to talk about versus written 3,500 words and read it to you on the podcast. And if you can pinpoint the ones that I just kind of blabbed my mouth rather than thought out and wrote down, um, then you will win a prize. What's the prize? Well, the joy of knowing... (laughs) That you can see through my BS. <laughs> um, yeah, so, but no, that is a real confession that I have to make. So, uh, sometimes I write out, literally write out the whole podcast, which is uh, about around 3,500 words. It's basically just an essay. Um, and then sometimes when I have been extremely lazy and or not had time, I will come up with what I'm my topic bullet point and then just wing it and the quality drops dramatically (laughs) i can't tell if this is because i'm failing at my 2019 goal that i talked about in that episode of creating more space for myself to uh, to (laughs) to come up with and write these podcasts or if it's because i'm trying to ease you guys into more of a uh you know, fly by the seat of my pants kind of conversational, um, less thought out presentation for the purpose of doing live streams in the future. Because let's be honest, if we went directly from something that I spent several hours writing down to me just talking off the cuff on a live stream, (laughs) you would be sorely disappointed. So I'm kind of trying to transition you the in-between ease you into it, let you get used to it, let you get comfortable, um, so that when I am not edited, uh, you won't be horrified and shocked. Um, and also to give myself practice because, uh, because I do, I think I do need to improve my, uh, my homiletics skills. Um, but today we are going to talk about why our Adventist theology makes us perpetually irrelevant in culture. Um, and then we're going to, I'm going to read you an essay that I wrote in college on my thoughts about Job from the book of Job fame. Okay, so let's go. So I hear a lot of complaints from young people my age, people in the church, that the church is so behind. We're irrelevant. We're not culturally innovative. Our music sucks. Our art sucks. Our films suck. Um, I've already talked about how uh, Christian fiction sucks. 
it's just a, a Adventist culture or Christian culture is just like five steps behind uh, the rest of the world. But the weird thing is, um, it didn't used to be that way, especially when it comes to the creative spheres, art. Uh, a lot of the most incredible art throughout history um, and anything in the creative realm was done in the name of religion. Like, look at the Sistine Chapel. <laughs> uh, but that's not true now. We're, like, behind. We're the, we're the copycats. We just do what everyone else ha did 10 years ago and call it a day. We just lift everything from secular culture, like, maybe 10 to 15 years after it was fresh and interesting, and, and then apply it and s say, oh, now we're being fresh and interesting. <laughs> um, and I'd say that the reason is because of our theology. Um, can you guess why I think that? Well, I think what we believe actually precludes us from being interesting or innovative. Um, and I've talked about how fundamentalism is censorious and cautionary in the sense that um, it, we're not allowed to, to ask the questions that we want to ask and say the things that we want to say and all of that sort of thing. And we live in such fear of our own rules that we constantly stop ourselves from thinking or doing things that are interesting. Um, and I think this is baked into our theology. It's not just a hazard or a symptom. It's actually baked in, and it's exactly the reason why we will never be interesting or relevant or um, in our production of culture or art. Um, and, and I think it stems from Christianity's depiction of a vindictive God, which leads us to create strict rules and rituals to appease that God. Um, it's, it's Baal worship, as Tim Jennings likes to say. So this idea that, that we, we have to follow all the rules so that we don't break the rules, so that we don't sin, so that God doesn't punish us, um, really, it just gives power to p the people who are creating those rules or, or or telling us about those rules because in reality often god doesn't actually have those rules we are the ones that put them in place we we give a wink wink and a laugh laugh at the you know all the rules the jews had or slash have um and we say oh we're so thankful that we are not beholden to those sets of rules while we um maintain our very own um imposed set of rules that god never asked us to do and isn't asking us to do and this stops people from experiencing life in a way that gives you reasons for creating art. It stops you from thinking about things from new perspectives. It stops you from asking the questions out of angst, um, out of the sadness and the tragedy of this world, of the contradictions that we see in the world, of the inexplicable parts of human nature that we can't understand. Um, it blinds our eyes to the parts of the world that so often spark new ideas and new thoughts and new inspirations and and new ways to interpret the same old sort of existence um and and if you look at real creative people create real creative people do what do two things they suffer <laughs> and they push boundaries. Um, but if your suffering is your own fault because of your sinfulness, 
and boundaries are there to keep you from incurring the wrath of God, as Christianity tells us, um, you're never going to explore the realist kind of introspection and self-examination of the human condition that it requires to spark some kind of creative light bulb. Um, and the sad irony is that God is the most creative being in the universe. He conceived of humanity. He conceived of stories. He conceived of art itself. He conceived of music, the solar system. He conceived of the narwhal and the gooey duck. So, yeah, he's an innovator. He's creative. And he created us in his image. And we are sitting here saying, oh, well, we got to follow the rules and we can't do anything outside of the box because... Ugh, God might get mad at us. And we're sitting on our hands in church trying to follow every single rule and not color outside the lines because we might upset God. And that's why we will never have anything worthwhile to say or to discover or to uncover. Uh, this is something that I was thinking about because of a discussion we were having on the Adventist Millennial Slack space. Shout out all of you people who came over to my Slack. Um, if you're not there, you should be. Uh, but we were talking about the issues and frustrations that we all invariably share with the Adventist church. And it got me thinking about the fact that our strict set of rules that God demands of us in order to reach sinless perfection um, are, are kind of blinders that give us tunnel vision. But the, but the, the worst part is that tunnel vision is a virtue. If you keep the blinders on and you don't look to the left or the right and you keep your eyes, you know, just on this tiny pinpoint um, of following the rules, that is virtuous and that is good. Um, it's virtuous to be uncreative, uninspired, boring, and stifled because you're so busy following the rules. And like I said, at the root of all of this is the fact that we're actually afraid of God. And that's so sad because he created us with the ability to create life, not only within our own species, but to think and to create on a conceptual and artistic level the way that he does. And, and we insist on keeping our nose to the imposed rules grindstone all the time, and we're missing so many opportunities. So until we fundamentally change our theology, no amount of like edgy ponytail wearing whiny voiced worship leaders will create really beautiful earth-shattering music no gimmicky coffee bar or streamed church service will ever catch up with the ground breaking ways of engaging people um that they are trying to copy there won't be any lens shifting redefining perspective that martin luther or paul in the epistles or da vinci or bach or even like freaking lin manuel miranda created when they blazed creative trails. We're not going to have any of that. Before we can do that, we first need to believe in a God that wants us to stretch and question and grapple with our inner conflicts and play out all of that by proxy, which is what good art does. Um, but we'll never be able to do that if we're constantly afraid we might break a rule. So to all of you creative people out there, 
Go create something amazing and moving and new and unseen and believe that you're modeling God when you do it instead of upsetting him. Part of what I like about storytelling is the way that it allows you to question the inconsistencies and incongruencies of life in a uh, make-believe context. But if you're so busy telling a story that is surreptitiously describing the rules of your religion, like so much Christian fiction does, um, that's a great, interesting story that puts everyone to sleep and no one can relate to. So don't do it. But guys, this is a really good opportunity right now in the time we're living for us because the creativity in culture at large is deteriorating and atrophying as well. Um, and it's for the same reason. It's just, it's just uh, fear and dogmatism on the other secular side. Uh, because dogmatic secular religion is stifling people's ability to be creative. Nowadays, in 2019, uh, comedians aren't allowed to be funny anymore because they might offend someone. Movies aren't allowed to be realistic anymore because they need to be representation uh, more than they need to be compelling. Music needs to be formulaic and, and canned so it can make money instead of being composed and moving. There's a huge opening in our society and a huge appetite for good art and very few people are stepping up to the plate right now. So why not? not us. Um, if you're a musician, go compose something beautiful. If you're a writer, go write something really honest. If you're a filmmaker, go tell an original story that's not a sequel or a reboot of something's pre-existing story. But first, before you do that, let yourself do it without wondering if whatever you're moved to create is heresy or if God would rather you stop dusting at 6.32 on a Friday evening to avoid the mark of the beast than to have a raw brush with existence and find out that a lot of the ways that we console ourselves are defensive mechanisms that aren't true or beautiful or artistic. Um, yeah, so go experience something and go create some art, okay? That's my suggestion for this week. Okay, so now I'm going to share an essay that I wrote in college about Job. Um, and, and the premise is, or the thesis is, in what ways did Job change as a real result of his experience? I mean, we all know kind of the broad strokes of the story. He was the good and upstanding guy, um, and then Satan come, came in, wiped out everything, and he just suffered and suffered and suffered, and then at the end, he got everything back, except that his kids were still dead, but he got new kids. Um, so, in broad strokes, how did Job change from the beginning of the book to the end of the book? Um, well, when I first pondered this question in my initial thought, it was that Job didn't really change between the beginning and the end of the book. I mean, like, what? look, he loved God and he was accepted by God in at the start of the book. And he still loved and was still accepted by God at the end of the book. If there was an adjustment that needed to be made in Job, it seems like God would have had it right there at the top of the agenda for him to do instead of parading him around in front of Satan and, and the angels as an example of perfection. Um, plus, God clearly accepted Job the way he was at the beginning of the book because um, he said, this is my perfect servant Job. If he, if he then changed in some way, Job, throughout the course of the book, you would think that God would 
have rathered him stayed the way he was before because he, he was perfect, right? He was upstanding and amazing. Um, this, however, is not the case. As we will see, Job does actually undergo some changes and is equally received by God before and after those changes. He learns to understand God better. He gets to know God for himself rather than simply knowing about him. And there's a change in the way that he lived after his trials, which is alluded to. Okay, so for us to decipher how Job changed, first we have to be acquainted with who he was to begin with. In the first chapter of Job, God um, is portraying Job as being blameless and upright. He was so confident in Job's loyalty that he even went so far as to, in a sense, provoke Satan. So God brought Job to Satan's attention and basically said, like, look, you have the majority of humanity on your side already, um, but I have one guy that you're not getting. Uh, he loves me. He's devoted to me. And there's nothing you can do about it. Um, and then Satan, who is always looking for ways to expose God as a liar and accuse him of uh, things, accused God of protecting Job too much. Um, he said that Job would have nothing to do with God if God took away all of his blessings and stopped shielding him from harm. Um, and that, in fact, Job would even curse God to his face if that happened. So now God is put in a position where simply refusing Satan's claim would incriminate himself. Um, he's obligated to prove Satan wrong by allowing the exact scenario Satan has just proposed to play out. So obviously then Satan proceeds to go and inflict tons of pain and suffering on Job. Um, and even after prompting from his wife, Job refuses to curse God and deny him. Now, to me, this would have been sufficient evidence to prove Satan's claim wrong. I mean, Satan and God both made a claim. Satan's claim failed and God's didn't. So you'd think that's the end, but that's not the end of the book. It goes on for like 40 more chapters. So what's the rest of the book about? Well, it's mostly like a discourse between Job and his three friends, and if you've ever read it, it can be kind of a drag to read, but um, the three friends try to convince Job that since God blesses the people who obey him and punishes those who sin, obviously Job must have sinned. Therefore, Job needs to confess. Uh, the only problem was that Job had not sinned, as we saw in the beginning, he would not admit to sin that he did not commit, um, but he still doesn't believe that God is the one causing his pain because he actually says, and this is in chapter 10, verse 2, he says, I will say to God, do not condemn me. Show me why you contend with me. Um, so Job was not aware of Satan's wager, obviously, against God. So therefore, he had no idea that Satan was really the one causing all of his suffering. At this point, he didn't know. Then from chapter 38 to the end of the book, uh, God asks Job a whole bunch of questions that make it pretty clear that he is in charge and that humans are these feeble little people who don't really have a clue what has been going on since the beginning of the universe. Uh, a lot of people believe that God's speech at the end of the book is basically telling Job that since God is omnipotent and creator of everything, that Job should just be quiet and accept what happens to him. People say that God is in essence telling Job 
don't question me, just take what I give you, all the suffering that happened to you. Um, after that, at the end of the book, Joe basically agrees to God's statement and everything is like all fine and dandy again. Um, but if I were Job, uh, I would have been unsatisfied with that. Um, yeah, it's true that God has complete power and knowledge, but with that being said, he could have easily given an explanation that provided some kind of closure for all of the stuff that Job went through. Uh, like, like, would I really want to follow a God who required full obedience without question, leaving me completely in the dark as I suffered through all of this stuff. Um, I believe that God does want us to understand as much as we possibly can about the struggle between good and evil for every person. Um, and I think he wants us to know that right now, with sin in the universe, his hands are tied. He can't prevent every bad thing from happening because that would give Satan ground in this great controversy. Um, he most of all wants us to understand his character, how much he loves us, and, and what he has done and is willing to do for us. God fully accepted Job at the beginning of the book before he understood God's character. This demonstrates that God recognizes the fact that human ability to comprehend anything uh, beyond what's basically right in front of our faces is very minute. Uh, he receives us when we follow him to the very best of our ability with the understanding that we, that we do currently have. But that also doesn't mean that he doesn't expect us or want us to continue step by step to grow and expand our understanding of him. And this is what he wanted from Job as well. As humans, it's, it's our first reaction to think that God, because he has total and complete power, must be responsible for all of our agony in life. Um, and Job, just like anybody else, had the attitude of like, why me, God? He spent a lot of time cutting himself with pottery, asking why. Why are you tormenting me? Not until God finally addresses him at the end of the book. Does Job actually realize the fact that it's Satan who's persecuting people rather than God? In chapter 41, God starts talking about Leviathan, um, and he makes an insinuation that Satan is really the cause of human suffering. God depicts Leviathan as extremely dreadful and ominous and has all of these scary characteristics. Um, and God makes it obvious that Leviathan is much more powerful than Job. Uh, but animals aren't typically referred to as having hearts in the sense of man's mind and ability to have relationships like love and stuff. That kind of heart, not like a beat, beat, beat heart. But God actually describes Leviathan as having a heart as hard as stone, just like Satan. Also in verse, in chapter 41, he says, he beholds every high thing. He is king over all the children of pride. Um, and this can certainly be applied to Satan as well. So if we look at the description of Leviathan by God as his illustration of Satan, um, and, and kind of look at it as him showing Job that even though God has complete power, he also has to deal with Satan in the great controversy. We might be able to understand Job's willingness to accept what God says rather than just sitting down and shutting up. This to me is much more satisfying explanation um, of God than just, 
well, your suffering is over. Um, go back to obeying me. The end. No questions. Thank you. So, at the end of the day, I, th- I think you can take away that Job, yes, was following God in faith from the beginning of the book until the very end. Um, but at the same time, he also did have a better understanding of God's motives and his character through the way God revealed to him that he wasn't the one that was actually inflicting it. Contrary to popular belief, he wasn't punishing Job. He was kind of giving Job a sneak peek into the great controversy through Leviathan, um, but obviously his friends were oblivious to it, and I think often we are still oblivious to it. But at the end of the book, Job says, I have heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Um, and Job did go on to live the rest of his life joyfully and still following God and satisfied with what he'd heard about God. Um, and God re- uh, rewarded his loyalty with his original blessings, material blessings, and more. But I think the key to understanding this is is to realizing that Job's understanding of God evolved. Um, and that drew them closer, and he got a little glimpse into why why things are the way they are. There's a lot more in the book of Job, but in this three-page essay that I wrote in college, um, I do do think, I do still agree that there's a legitimate point to be made, that Job evolved in his understanding of God's character throughout the course of the book, and that God was actually telling Job something about the great controversy that often we just miss nowadays when we reread it. Um, And if you have thoughts, questions, If you want to share your amazing creative art with me, send it to me at AdventistMillennial at gmail.com. You can join the Slack, Adventist Millennials, find the link, or send me an email and I'll send you the link. Send me a message on Instagram or Twitter at SDA Millennial, and I'll see you guys next week.